to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today we're going to be talking with Lynn Kazali, who is the author of Ish. And I'm a big fan of Lynn's work. And I think we hold some similar values on the podcast. We've talked a lot about launching quickly. Bean Ninjas was launched in seven days as a business and then getting something out to market and then iterating and improving. And that is what Lynn's book Ish is all about and she's here to, to tell us all about it. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Meryl. Really excited to be here. So let's start with a little bit about what issues is all about and then a little bit about your background and running your own business and then the theme of the episode is mainly going to be about digging into the concepts within ish right so the book ish is about this word ish it used to be at the end of words and it still is like danish english swedish and it means somewhat or near enough and so it's become part of our everyday language when we go to meet up with someone what time do you want to meet up or oh, six-ish and so we can accept this idea of near enough on a lot of things not everything but a lot of things and I've been a bit more ish in my life over over the past few years trying things out launching ideas and as I was doing that I was discovering that it becomes a kind of answer to the increasing problem of perfectionism in the world today. So the book's got some advice and processes about how to challenge our thinking that we need perfectionism. We actually don't. We can go for good enough instead. Great. And just quickly on that, how do you work out what is good enough? And I think we've discussed this on LinkedIn previously with something like accounting it can be right or wrong. So can you apply ish to that or is it better applied in different contexts? It will depend on the context. And like for surgery, for example, I don't want a surgeon going, oh, is that, you know, <laughs> is that near enough? Is that good enough? But if you have a look at healthcare more broadly, there's plenty of places where they ish. That is, you know, medication may not be given at exactly the same time every day or the cleaner may not come into the hospital room at exactly the same time every day. So I guess we're talking about standards and what's the expectation. So in accounting or in aviation or in building and construction, food handling, you know, there's a whole heap of standards and they're there for a reason. It's so that we hit them and that is the acceptable level of standard or the the target we need to reach. And I guess I'd, I'd like people to have a think about other parts of their life and their world where they might be aspiring for this unknown standard and instead set some sort of standard. And often it is good enough. What will suffice? What will do the job in this case? And I'd love to dig into a little bit of your backstory and how you came up with this concept. I'd been working in the communications field in the first part of my career and every day is different you know when you talk to people about their job role and every day is different so we're kind of used to uncertainty or a little bit of unpredictability other people their jobs can be quite similar day after day 
But what I found was working with different audiences or different stakeholders is that even if I was trying to control something, you know, being a bit of a control freak and wanting everything to be perfect, there were certain times I couldn't make things perfect. I had to release them or I had to share them or other people in the team were waiting on me to finish my part of a task or a project. And then so as I'd worked through that in my career and then I started my own business, I was finding that I was wasting a lot of time trying to make things better when in fact they were already good enough. So it's being, I wouldn't say a productivity win, but it is if we can find ways where we're maybe doing unnecessary work. And that was one of the biggest sort of ahas for me is that I continued to work on a lot of things, but in fact, they were already good enough and the extra effort I was putting in wasn't making a whole heap of difference. And so is that one of the things that you see is wrong with the by pursuing or being a perfectionist? You might not actually be having, putting in that extra time isn't necessarily having an impact. And do you see any other issues with aiming for perfection in everything? Yeah, I think the first, this blanket, view you know when people say oh I have high standards and I'd be like yeah for everything are you sure about that you know who hasn't dragged a piece of clothing out of the dirty laundry basket and put it on again (laughs) (laughs) you know a lot of us do little things and like making dinner you know at night we say oh that'll do you know I will have a, a batch night tonight where we just make up something rough for dinner we're not cooking a gourmet meal every night following an extreme recipe, you know, with 300 steps like the people on MasterChef in the competitions. So there's lots of times in our day and in our life where we are calling it. We're saying, yeah, that'll do. That'll do for my clothing that I wear today. That'll do for my hair. That'll do. And I'm encouraging people to call that'll do or that's good enough a lot sooner than we might normally. So perhaps I can just extend on that point And that when we continue to work on something, and economists call it the law of diminishing returns, we know that at a certain point, the effort we've put in is bringing us a return. But at a certain tipping point, we're going to start wasting our time because we're not going to get the return on effort. So there's a a point on pretty much every task, every project where we don't get the return that we are putting the effort in for and that's the time to call it and go it's good enough it's good to go and do you have some tips for people in their own business or as employees around how they can apply this concept i'll give you an example just of of myself so when i was an employee often i didn't really know what the expected standard was And so sometimes I would go above and beyond and it wasn't needed and it was really a waste of effort. But I didn't know how to figure out what the standard needed to be. Whereas in my own business, I'm happy taking risks and knowing what needs to be good enough and and what needs to be perfect. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of requirements, I think, and that is if you're a leader of a team, if you're delegating work or people have got responsibilities, you have got the responsibility of setting the standard. And too often, what the standard is, is a deadline. We say to people, it's due on Tuesday, or could you get that done by five o'clock? And what happens is people put a lot of effort in between now and the deadline, but they have no clear concept of what the standard is that they're going for. 
And this is why people do all-nighters, you know, and they put extra, extra hours in because we don't know what the expectation is. We're just trying to go for the best, the best we could possibly do. So as a leader, I think it's really great if you can clarify for people not only when is it due, but what's the standard you're expecting. So uh, a colleague leader of mine, she just says, oh, just put a few points on a page or it needs to be a three-page report or it needs to include these reports and this data. So she's giving her team way more guidance on the quality, not just the deadline. And then let's switch around because if I can add that if you've been given a task and you don't know what the quality is, then you need to ask the question, not just when is it due, but what are you expecting for this? Or how much detail do you want me to go into? Or how long would you like me to spend on this? So we sometimes need to ask these clarifying questions of the person who's given us the task. Great. So there's some ownership as a leader in making sure that you're being clear about expectations. And that almost sounds like writing a good brief. I know if I'm, so we, we create a lot of content at Beaninges and we've found that the more detailed and specific we are with our briefs for writing a piece of content, the better the work that comes back. So it's a little bit more time up front in defining what's expected, but then the result seems to be better. Is that right in saying? That's it. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's the leader, but then also take ownership if someone's giving you a task to ask enough clarifying questions so that you know what to do. And I like your point around, well, how long would you like me to spend on that? Because that gives you a feel too as to how important something is. That's right. That's right. And so you can use this language, which I've been running workshops on this in in businesses, and it's now becoming part of their lexicon or their language where people are saying, oh, just ish this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so it's a beautiful language. And on um, my ish website, I've got a little watermark. So you could put ish in the background of a document instead of putting draft <laughs> or draft 1.723, just put ish. And then people will begin to learn that this is a thing that we, this is my first cut at this task, or here's my first version. It's incomplete and it's just some of our, you know, our first near enough go at it. And I'm sure I've seen on LinkedIn you talking about applying ish with your own work and I can't remember exactly what it was, whether it was a book or whether it was an article or something, but it was you just published it within, you'd applied ish to it yourself and I thought that was brilliant. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure who recall what I'm talking about there. Yeah. So the book itself that's just come out, that's uh, when you open it up and have a look on the inside cover, it's up to its fifth iteration. Not fifth edition, but fifth iteration. So the first and second iterations of the book were pretty crappy, <laughs> crappy and scrappy. And I gave it to a few people and said, could you have a read of this and tell me what you think? You know, is, it, is this something you'd be interested in reading? So I got really, really interesting feedback from people saying this was good that was wordy you waffled on about this <laughs> that doesn't make sense and then I worked on a second iteration and a third iteration and then got it edited and a fourth iteration and now we're at the fifth iteration and that's kind of it so I've actually applied this process to the writing of the book and you can do that with all sorts of things preparing reports you know, preparing presentations. Last week I was talking to a couple of friends and they said, we're iterating how we're packing the car for our family holiday. 
you know, they've put stuff in, they've taken it out, they're tweaking it, they're trying something different rather than expecting perfect at the beginning. And so going back to the creation of, of the book, how long did you give yourself for to create or to write and publish the very first version? Well, here's this timing deadline again. It wasn't about time. It's about quality. And so all I wanted to do was get it ten to 15,000 words. That was my standard. Just get several thousand words, not spend two weeks or a month, but a certain word target and that would be enough to give people an idea of what this topic was about and did it have legs, you know, was it something they'd want to read more of. There's an example of where we go for time, but actually we should be going for another target, another standard. That's really interesting. So I think about this concept of standards quite a lot, but I've always linked it with time. And so in this example, talking about a book, the way that I would previously have approached this before talking to you would be to say, well, I'm going to allocate this amount of resources to something. So in this case, it might be, I'm going to allocate six weeks or six months to work on this project. And it's going to be as good as it can be based on the resources I'm allocating. But that actually sounds like your style is a little bit different by looking at, well, what is the standard? And that actually sounds like a better result because you've defined what the standard needs to be rather than what what you've you've just defined the outcome rather I'm defining the input that's going into it yeah yeah and you know 10 to 15,000 words you can write that in one day you can and the perfectionists listening to this will say oh no (laughs) they're probably thinking of perfectly written beautifully constructed sentences that have been edited, you know, how people sweat over putting a blog or a post out. This is a perfect example of how we spend inordinate amounts of time on tasks. And we've already hit that, you know, that Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, where we only have to put in a mere 20% of effort to get a massive 80% of the job done. And therefore, that means we're wasting 80% of our time to just get a faffy little 20% return. (laughs) So all I did was go for, let's spit out 10 to 15,000 words. That will be enough to get this idea of mine across. And they don't need to be perfectly laid out. It doesn't need to look pretty. It just needs to be what the software development and the startup world call minimum viable product. Or in pharmacy and medicine, they call it the minimum effective dose. Like how little can I do and it will still work rather than I have to make this perfect. And it's this, I have to make it perfect, that is causing ridiculous levels of stress, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, overwork, insomnia, migraines, asthma, all of these health conditions because people continue to push themselves towards, you know, an imaginary target, an imaginary standard. And we can't get to perfect anyway. It's going to have to be imperfect. Yes. Well, I'd love to hear some more examples about how to apply-ish. And maybe a way to approach that, you mentioned that you run workshops often in the the software industry. And so how do you approach, if you've got a group of people especially with some perfectionists in there, how do you go about helping them to apply this principle? We can see how we start off the day, you know, 
one of the activities I've run before is if you're having some people over for dinner or you're having a picnic or you're organising some social activity. So I usually start with something social and I get people to tell me what needs to be done to get this event or get this thing up and running. And some people, you know, they're already quite ish on the scale of, you know, perfectionism. They're a bit near enough and they'll say, you know what, I just send everyone a message and say, it's on at my house will order takeaway when you get here. And the perfectionist will be more like, okay, I'm going to have to create an invitation. I'm going to have to clean the house. I'll have to tell people what time it starts. I have to go to the supermarket and buy a bunch of things. We're going to have to just totally rearrange the lounge room so everyone can fit in. And there ends up being this long, long list of tasks to make the event or the gathering perfect. So as a starting point, it's a little bit of a self-assessment to see how much are you doing what's called maximising, that is trying to make everything amazing and it actually doesn't have to be like that. Then we look at, well, what are the tasks, the high-value tasks that we can focus on that actually matter? And often it breaks down to things like letting people know it's on and what time and where. And once we get people together, then we can work out you know, what we're going to eat. So that's a classic example of helping people identify what their preferences might already be and how this maximising way of thinking, which can take up so much time, we're never satisfied with the results, how that flows on into all areas of our lives and can be, you know, can make us difficult to work with, to be truthful, can make us really difficult to work with if we're always searching for better or more. That's a good point. Have you got some examples of that, of how if someone's behaving in this perfectionist style or really trying to maximise everything, how it, they can be difficult to work with? Yeah, I think we've, if anyone that comes in early, stays back late, doesn't go to lunch, doesn't have breaks, working with a team last week and they were, there's a couple of people in the business, they're not taking their holidays. So this feeling of I have to be here to be in control of everything and know what's going on. So these are all sort of red flags for leaders to just look a bit closer and go, well, is this person going for perfect? Are they going for perfectionism? And then the flow-on effect is they're often holding up processes or projects. You'll often find information sitting in these people's inboxes or in their tasks or on their Trello boards or wherever, and things are they're being blocked. They're blockers to progress. They're bottlenecks to progress. And it's because they're worried about the quality of what they're putting out. It's not good enough yet. I still need to check some more facts. I still need to get more data. I can't get this wrong. What if I stuff this up? So this sort of thinking is absolutely behind the perfectionist or the kind of overcompensating behaviours. And therefore, the flow-on effect then, it can lead to delays in delivering services to clients. So then services suffer, client satisfaction suffers, the client goes to a competitor who's maybe got a little bit more of an ish attitude on the things that don't matter and we can see how those companies are are responding and adapting quicker but iterating over time. So one example is replying to customer concerns or customer complaints. The more perfectionist person might wait until they've collected all the facts And then they put forward this very wordy email or letter back to the client. Whereas a more ish or agile or iterative or adaptive team would 
issue a bunch of information over a period of time. This is what I found out. Now we've found this and we're pursuing it further and here's the next bit of information. And this is something I I learned in the public relations field. I used to do some work with crisis public relations that you don't wait until all the facts are in. You need to release information as you know it. I guess it's a little how Amazon ships products, right? If you order six books, they don't wait until all six are there before they send the package. As soon as they've got the ones available, I'll send them to you. So you might get multiple packages. This is this idea of working in increments and working in iteration. There's two points that you've discussed there, and one of them has reminded me of a story of the impact of having a perfectionist manager. And it was actually a friend of mine who was really motivated to create change and improve things, who had a perfectionist manager who would never approve anything. It would just sit on his desk and just nothing would ever happen with it. And, and she was a really excellent team member and ended up losing motivation and just leaving and going somewhere else and excelling somewhere else. And I actually, you reminded me of that story of the manager just holding progress and really stopping or yeah, ruining her levels of motivation. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't create an environment of achievement. You know, we're quite motivated by progress when we see things changing or we can tick things off, you know, that's done or I've achieved that, I can move on to the next thing. And when things get blocked or stuck with someone, And yeah, I'm sure most of us would have worked with someone or I like to say for someone who was a perfectionist boss because you kind of become their servant or their minion or their lackey. (laughs) And then it's back and forward. Um, Someone the other day was telling me they were up to version 17 of this this, uh, (laughs) um, announcement to customers. And she just said, we keep going back and forward, back and forward with the manager and they won't press go on it. You know, they keep fiddling and then the more they keep looking at it the more they keep looking at it they need to let it go and and if as someone sent me a message yesterday they sent a message it had an error they corrected it but at least that flow of information and that progress is there it's much more inspiring than working for someone who slows things down or stops them or blocks them driving for perfect So say you are that manager who just finds it really hard to change that behaviour. Do you have any other tips for that perfectionist? They know they believe in the concept of ish, but they're just finding it really hard to implement. They feel like they're dropping their standards, even though it's about things that don't matter. How do you help those kind of people? It's about understanding that this is not, it's not a life sentence. Like it's not something that can't be changed. It can be changed. But to also understand that this is a generational thing. So you've probably learned this from your upbringing or you, you know, you may have been judged harshly by a teacher or a friend or family member as you were growing up or you had an unsettling period of time in your life. And so this overcompensation of doing extra activity was a way to get acknowledgement or a way to be seen. So to acknowledge this first is the thing to do. and. What happens when people start acknowledging it and understanding more about ish is they start to see it themselves. They will start to see where they're maximising or doing too much for something. An example, a friend mentioned the other day they were searching for an Airbnb to rent on this holiday in Hawaii. And she said, after I'd read your stuff about ish, she said, I realised I was maximizing I was over searching 
looking for the perfect Airbnb for our family holiday. And she realised that she was going for perfect. She kept finding faults in things and then looked at some of the first properties she'd looked at and went back and actually chose one of those first or second ones she'd spotted, that that ended up being good enough. It was fit for purpose because her extra efforts of looking didn't really deliver. So the next call out then is anytime you feel overwhelmed or overworked or your to-do list is too long, pretty likely that you are going for too high a standards on too many things. We're going to move the conversation into one of the themes of our podcast, which is around running a business and financial freedom. And we're really interested in what that means for everyone. But before we jump into that, is there anything else that you wanted to share around the concept of ish or your book or any other stories that you wanted to or examples that you wanted to share before we move into the next thing? Yeah, perhaps just to say this is not a blanket approach. Understandably, precision is important and accuracy is important and excellence is important in a lot of things in life. And we see dreadful accidents and incidents where people have ished on things where they shouldn't have. So I'm not talking about that. If there are standards in your field or there are agreed, you know, there's an agreement or an arrangement, you need to deliver on a certain level of service, well, then you do that. But I'm talking about all the other things where we set up imaginary standards. I think if you can't document what the standard is that you're going for, it's probably imaginary and could be a hint of perfectionism there. Brilliant. Now a little bit more about you personally and running your business. So could you give a little bit of an overview of when you started your business and what services you provide? You've mentioned a little bit around facilitation. You've got a number of books, but could you give us a a brief overview of your business? Yes. So I help people and teams adopt new ways of thinking and new ways of working. So some of this is, is born from the agile way of thinking and working. And it doesn't just belong in software development. We can apply it at home, at school, you know, in our community, in all sorts of practices. So that, for a lot of people, means understanding what these new ways of working are and trying them out, you know, trying them on. And I do that by speaking at conferences and events and through my books. And I also run some workshops, so both publicly and deliver them in-house. And so that's some programs on how to be a better facilitator or meeting leader and how to use visuals for thinking and communicating, like sense-making, which is one of those cool skills the Institute for the Future said we'd need by 2020. Again, that's in an area where we try and be perfect with our communication and actually near enough is often good enough. Wonderful. And this is a question that we're asking all guests. What does financial freedom mean to you? And on a scale with one being just starting out and 10 being financially free, where would you see that you're sitting at the moment? So financial freedom, I imagine myself, you know, walking on, uh, walking on a nice beach up in the northern parts of Australia, walking a dog, not having a care in the world. That would be financial freedom to me and, and that there would be that I might have some sort of entrepreneurial or business activity and it's either running itself or I'm just dabbling with it as I want to. That would be my 
mental image of financial freedom and document it. So not just the perfect life, but uh, writing those things down. And on a scale of one to 10, I'm certainly not just starting and I'm not financially free. So I'm probably around a six or seven, something like that. Yeah, wonderful. And have there been any books or resources that have helped you on your business journey in understanding finances, accounting, bookkeeping? When I was at university, I had an introduction to accounting topic and I often found the book was a good textbook to read if I needed to get to sleep at night. So I would have this book by my bed. And despite that thinking it was boring, all that information was actually going into my head. And so I love money. You know, I love working things out and tallying things up. I used to play with staplers and calculators and receipt books. When, when I was a kid, I used to play offices. <laughs> so I was always very curious about stationery shops and the petty cash notebook and the petty cash tin. So all of those sorts of things really intrigued me. And I used to play shops. So it was about, you know, ex- the exchange of money for service. So I think I had this sort of growing up playfulness around money and the information connected with money. But I also had a mentor in some of my early roles. It was the the CFO and the financial, you know, head of finance in a hospital I was working in. And I kind of didn't get the financial statements that they were printing out on. My budgets were out of control. And he pulled me aside one day and said, would you like me to explain these to you? (laughs) And I said, yes. Uh, his name was Keith, and Keith gave me a beautiful briefing this day on how finances worked in large organisations, and I am forever grateful to him because I then went on to be a chair of a board and board member and do a number of other things, and I don't think I could have done that without having that knowledge. I'm thankful for my childhood gains, but also the people that you end up working with who step in to mentor you or to guide you. It's really interesting the the point around studying an accounting subject at university too. Accounting and finance knowledge is actually one of the common regrets I hear from entrepreneurs that they wish they had learnt about that earlier in in their business journey. So it, it sounds like you were lucky in I don't like to think of it as luck, but they were great early experiences for you in just having that mentor and studying accounting. Yes. There were challenging topics like statistics, but then there were really rich and interesting subjects like psychology. And then there was the practicalities of market research and therefore, you know, accounting, how how are we going to manage the finances connected with our marketing campaigns? And then we had practical, practical application of that live campaigns that we were running. And people very quickly learned if they didn't have the financial skills to keep funding their marketing campaign, everything stopped. And the ones that kind of won, the teams that won those challenges, they were always way more on top of their finances than anybody else in in the class. That was always a strong message to me. Know what's coming in, know what's going out. Uh, You might not have the perfect system. You know, I just have a little list on my uh, desktop in an Evernote file, but I just, I know what's coming in and and I know what's going out and... (laughs) and keeping across that. I never want to be in that denial place. Lynn, thank you so much. I've loved having you on the show. It's been a great chat. Thank you. If our audience wanted to get in touch 
or they were interested in having you facilitate a workshop or they wanted to buy a book, where's the best place for them to reach out to you? Yeah, the best place is probably the website, www.lynnkazaley.com. And there's plenty of information there, heaps of blogs going over the past years, some free resources, info about workshops, info about different books uh, that I've written and different resources. So, And I welcome connection on LinkedIn as well. There's plenty of information and resources there. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Meryl. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you on the podcast. Want to upgrade your financial skills and learn how to use Zero better? Applications are now open for our Financial Literacy for Zero Users training course, designed for non-accountants who want to better understand and manage small business finances. Here's what Hayden, one of our past students, shared about his experience. I guess one of the biggest challenges I've found with our business predominantly being e-commerce is that as soon as money comes in, it goes straight back out to invest in inventory and other expenses that are involved in having a product-based business. So cash flow is always a significant issue. I basically realized that I wasn't checking financial documents regularly enough. So didn't really have as good understanding of where we were financially on a regular basis and also keeping up to date. Checking the bank accounts occasionally wasn't enough really. And when you go in and check the financial statements, you really get a better understanding of where your business is positioned financially. The course really gave us a better understanding of the different elements of the cash flow and financials and really made it to be a great course. It's really great now to have all the tools and templates that I need to go back and have a look at. I've got them saved away, which is fantastic. and go back through and review them at any stage when we need them, which is often required as we grow. So if you're someone who gets overwhelmed with the idea of going into your zero file and not knowing what's going on money-wise with your business, and you just want a simple way to understand zero and finances for your peace of mind, head to beninjas.com forward slash course to learn more about our financial literacy course and apply today. That's beninjas, B-E-A-N-N-I-N-J-A-S.com forward slash course. 